Hello and welcome back to another episode. So today we're doing something a little bit different. So in this series, I haven't exactly decided the name for it yet, but during the series, I plan on talking to people of interest to me because of their experiences and basically to learn more about different topics as well. And so just to start off this episode, I am pleased to have the opportunity to speak with a man, Professor William, with a plethora of accolades and, you know, he's simply remarkable. So he's the medical director of the National Cancer Center, the chair of the Oncology Academic Clinical Practice, a head of the Duke NUS Cell Therapy Center, and so many other appointments. And I'm really, really excited to speak with him. Professor William, welcome. Oh, it's really a privilege to speak with you too, Xavier. Yep. How are you doing? And maybe you can provide some quick updates on how things are going and maybe a quick introduction as well. Yeah, so uh, Xavier, as you can see on my uh, building on my right over here, that's uh, the new National Cancer Centre that uh, we will be uh, opening up in 2022. Uh, the building is ready, more or less completed, and uh, we will be moving in in phases. And over the next few months, we will probably see our first patient towards the last quarter of 2022 in the new building. It's a new 24-story uh, building with the additional four basement floors for radiation therapy, proton therapy, and uh, the rest of the building. We have many different aspects of oncology care. It will house the new uh, Singapore Cancer Society headquarters. It will also house the uh, new National Cell Therapy Facility, otherwise known as ACTRIS, the Advanced Cell Therapy Research Institute of Singapore. And also house many new facilities for, by which we will, we will be able to treat patients. For example, a new proton therapy center where we can deliver proton uh, therapy, uh, radiation therapy more accurately to patients um, and such that you can hit normal tissue while sparing, uh, you can hit the cancer tissue while sparing the normal tissue so that uh, patients are spared a lifetime of side effects uh, with the cancer still cured. So uh, I think cancer is a particularly important area. In Singapore, one in three persons uh, is, is dying of cancer. Our highest cause of death is cancer. Uh, one, of three, one out of three of the causes of death is uh, a cancer-related uh, cause of death. So I think that um, it is an area for which it continues to grow and the reason for that is not because of poor health care or anything like that. It's because uh, we are actually surviving many other illnesses. You know, heart disease, we've got good drugs to prevent heart disease, uh, to reduce heart disease. And even if you've got heart disease, you might not necessarily die from a heart attack because of many things that are new. Uh, stroke, there are many things that we have improved in terms of our treatment uh, and prevention to improve the prognosis and prevention of stroke. And then uh, many other illnesses in the past, you know, like uh, uh, infections and things like that have been massively reduced over time. The only infection that has been a cause of concern in the last two years is COVID, right? But even then, uh, I'm hopeful that we'll be, we will be able to get over this bump. But as people survive all these other diseases, one of the diseases that is difficult to uh, prevent to some extent is cancer. Because the older a person gets, uh, the more 
often your cell divides, you know, so you, your, your cells are rep, continuing to divide and grow over a long, long period of time. And during this period, um, there can be accumulated genetic uh, changes, accumulated genetic damage. And the longer you live, the more accumulations of genetic damage happen. And because of this, uh, then cancer cells will start to arise from among the many cells that are mutated, and this will lead to cancer. So cancer is going to be something that's going to get increasingly more. We can reduce the incidence by preventing smoking, uh, you know, uh, uh, having good exercise actually reduces the incidence of cancer. Um, keeping a healthy lifestyle also reduces the incidence of cancer. But um, they can only do that to some extent. So cancers will get more with time. Um, so we think that this is an area of particular importance for which we need to make sure that the appropriate prevention, screening strategies to pick up cancer are instituted and the right therapies are given for, for patients. And in terms of the right therapies, we have um, uh, many aspects of so the right therapy that we want to focus on. For example, uh, are we giving the drugs to the right patients? Right? Uh, maybe these patients will benefit from these drugs and another group of patients actually will benefit from another set of drugs. Uh, for example, if a patient has one particular type of cancer, I can give uh, first-line cancer therapy. And then uh, if the patient fails, I give second-line cancer therapy. And then fails, I give third-line cancer therapy. But what if I knew from the beginning that I should go to third-line? What if I knew that for this patient, this drug will work and this drug wouldn't work? So the right patient is very important. And then also the right dose. Different patients need different doses. We have found that uh, orientals may need uh, less uh, dose for some drugs compared to Caucasian counterparts, but even not all orientals and not all Caucasian counterparts. So there are genetic differences that help us to be able to differentiate and tell this, and also the drug levels that help us to be able to give the right dose to patients. Also right location. When you give a radiotherapy, for example, when you give a radiotherapy beam, which is usually photons, photons will pass through many areas, and that will uh, damage good cells and bad cells. But if you can give a more accurate therapy, for example, with protons, protons will, are larger particles that will be flung from the accelerator onto the cancer cell, and then it will stop there. So there's radiation delivered to the cancer cell, but not beyond. So that is, uh, that it will be a significant advance. So I think many of these areas of progress, we want to ensure that Patients are given the best chance um, to prevent, to screen, to treat early, to treat well, to treat uh, precisely the patients. And then sometimes when patients uh, progress beyond that to ensure that they have the right palliative care and the right support for their families in the event of bereavement. And undergirding all this is the right psychosocial support uh, for patients throughout the cancer journey. So I think these, these are, uh, as you can see from the fact that I spoke for so long, uh, something I feel passionately about. Yeah, for sure. I think um, you definitely gave such a huge overview into not only uh, cancer, especially in like 2021, I think it's even more prevalent than it was before. 
and yeah, it's clear that your passion for for your for your craft is is there. So you know, in talking about like you know, I think you mentioned just now one in three Singaporeans, for example, uh, they they will experience cancer. Has this always been the case, or is it more prevalent due to maybe more unhealthy diets, is lack of exercise, that kind of thing? Okay, so uh, Xavier, the truth is, I think that the population is actually surviving longer. And because they survive longer, um, that's why you see an increased incidence of cancer. The truth is in the 60s and 70s, the infections were a very predominant cause of death. And then subsequently, heart disease and stroke became more common in terms of a cause of death. But as we overcame this um, diseases, infection, heart disease, stroke, and became not completely gone, but less with time, cancer has become more because of the fact that it's difficult to escape uh, cancer as you accumulate more genetic uh, changes uh, with time. And the truth is also that uh, the population in Singapore ha has a pretty long lifespan. It is uh, 82 to 86 years of age and one of the longest in the world. So it's not as if uh, Singaporeans are particularly unhealthy. It's just that uh, we are surviving longer and therefore have more cancer as a result. But this is still something that uh, we want to be able to make it better for Singaporeans in terms of uh, you know, less morbidity from cancer, um, better survival from cancer, and also better uh, uh, entire experience if they do come down with cancer subsequently. Right. So it's more of people living longer and the less chance of people dying from other diseases and hence cancer is more prevalent. Yeah, I prelevant. think that is probably the most important reason. I mean, other factors are the fact that any urban environment tends to have a little bit more cancer than rural environments, mostly speaking. Right. How is uh, that so? Urban, urban environments may be that there is more, uh, you know, uh, petrochemical fumes, maybe there's more radiation in the environment from, uh, you know, various sources. And rural environments, I guess, is a less stressful lifestyle, cleaner. But this is by and large. There are some rural environments where cancer is higher, uh, and that may be related to uh, various reasons, uh, pesticides or, or other reasons. Uh, so that could be another factor. Uh, the change in diet could be another factor too. Uh, getting a more and more Western diet. And I would say that the Singaporean cancer pattern uh, is a little bit closer to that of the Western countries in terms of uh, incidence of different types of cancer as opposed to some other Asian countries. And whether this is because of the Western diet or other factors is not so clear. But uh, that, that's another factor that comes into consideration. Then also the fact that, um, you know, our, our uh, people are generally having, uh, to some extent, a more sedentary lifestyle compared to before may also contribute because we know that exercise both reduces the incidence of cancer and also improve survival when you have cancer. But however, you know, I do notice that Singapore has kind of evolved over the last decade or two 
whereby there are a lot of people doing regular exercise. And, um, you know, I think exercise has kind of become quite trendy in Singapore. Yeah, I, I think it's not just like the diet we bring, but uh, the, that Western cultures bring, but also kind of like the emphasis on fitness as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I think one of the things that you mentioned before uh, about your passion for, for, for what you do. So I just also wanted to find out more of your own journey as a doctor, how you got started, what caused this kind of interest. But I guess firstly, you, you have a lot of different titles as when I introduced at the start. So actually, what's your main kind of specialization? I mainly specialize in blood stem cell transplants to treat patients with uh, blood cancers. So blood cancers include uh, acute leukemia, chronic leukemia, uh, multiple myeloma, lymphoma, and, and stuff like that. And various kinds of uh, long names like myelodysplastic syndrome, myeloproliferative yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, But basically the blood cancers. So how do you kind of like, you know, firstly, how do you get interested in medicine? And second, uh, how do you then get interested in your particular specialization? Yeah. When I was uh, considering applying for, you know, what uh, kind of course in university, I was tossing up a number of options, one of which I considered, hey, maybe I'll do law or something like that. So I spoke to a friend of mine and um, we, we had a lunch. I, I think it was lunch with his uncle, who was a general practitioner. And during the conversation, we were chatting about many things and we, I asked him, uh, so, you know, why, why are you a doctor? You know, why, why, do you, why, why did you choose this field? Now, his answer was actually very simple and word-wise, it didn't say very much, but he said, but there's nothing else I could imagine myself doing. It's not so much the words he said, but there was a certain a gleam in his eye and a kind of lightness in his voice and spirit as he spoke that. He spoke of a certain, you know, enthusiasm, joy, fulfillment. And it spoke that, uh, you know, in it, I read that he really enjoyed his work and uh, that he really felt that uh, he was applying what he learned. I may have been over-reading what he said, <laughs> but uh, I would say I was inspired. And so, you know, I chose to do medicine because of that. In the fact that I felt that it could, uh, what I learned, I could really apply in a way that changes lives and makes an impact on the world. And uh, while at the same time, not, not, not having to uh, scrape for pennies in the process. So uh, over the years, uh, I, there was also the decision about specialization. And um, I was doing a posting in the hematology department and where patients undergo blood stem cell transplant, you know, for diseases like acute leukemia. And I was quite inspired with uh, one of my bosses there at that time that was in the 1990s. And he was showing some of the research he, he did and how this was being applied in uh, some of the patients. Uh, so that was intriguing, but that was just intriguing. Then um, somewhat later, I think the day or day after, I had uh, one of the patients uh, passed away. He was a young man 
and he had been fighting with uh, leukemia for quite some time. And, you know, he underwent a stem cell transplant. And unfortunately, the disease came back. And then he, uh, we, we, we still fought for it, and, but he, he succumbed in the end. And in that setting, I felt terrible. You know, I felt that, you know, well, we failed him, you know. Uh, we, we, we didn't help him uh, get cured. But at that moment, um, his parents were grieving. Uh, one of them, the mother, turned around to me and uh, gave me a hug. And she said, thank you. Thank you so much for all you have done. Um, and that moved me, you know. And that moment, I thought, hey, you know, this is tough job. You know, it's tough emotionally for me too because uh, some patients are not going to survive and some of the patients are not going to make it. And the image of uh, firefighters came to my mind. Sometimes with people in the burning building, you go in, you, you try to bring out who you can. They may lift, they may not lift, and you get a little bit burnt and singed in the process, and you yourself might not survive it. But someone's got to do it, right? And uh, I felt inspired at that point, you know, that maybe, maybe this is a job worth doing. Later that day, uh, I was covering some patients in the clinic and uh, I saw a very sprightly man uh, come into the clinic. He greeted the nurses. The nurses greeted him. He seemed very popular. And uh, next thing I know, he was bouncing into my clinic room. And I found out that he, he was actually a, a transplant survivor. Uh, he had to transplant for his cancer many years ago. Uh, he was doing very well. And um, he, he was now, you know, he looked perfectly like, like you or me, you know. In fact, more energy than you or me. So uh, I felt, hey, it's worth it for, for some of these, you know, to, to have that outcome. I felt that the process can be better. I felt that uh, I had to work, help work on it to help make the process uh, even better, survival even better. I felt uh, uh, we could uh, make the risk of the process reduce. We could increase, reduce the chances of relapse and increase the chance of long-term cure of disease. So that is uh, something I was particularly driven and inspired by. Yeah, wow. So that's uh, yeah, really such an exceptional story. And I think that these kinds of stories would really move anyone to go into that same path that you took. And, you know, you mentioned about yourself making changes and the differences uh, that you're trying to make, for example, in trying to lower the chance of relapses. And in doing so, you're really starting out as a junior doctor. So then how do you go about making these fundamental changes to get the results that you then desire? So that's a very good question. So for that reason, for a number of years, I was uh, uh, working like a clinician scientist um, and doing a fair bit of research into this. And the area that uh, I even um, helped to engineer some antibodies uh, when I was overseas on an attachment. Uh, I went on an attachment with the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, which is like the mecca for bone marrow transplantation. And when I came back, um, I was asked to help set up and build the local uh, cord blood bank 
in, in a public cord blood bank to, to use a cord blood as a source for stem cells for transplantation. And um, a lot of my research has focused around making transplant safer by increasing the number of cells available for patients at the point of transplantation. I saw some clinical trials related to this. Instead of using a whole-scale uh, transplant to take the cells, engineer them, uh, engineer the immune cells and put them back into patients uh, to, to hunt down cancer, something that we call CAR-T cell therapy. So that, that has been kind of my way to contribute to making the process better. But more important than that, there is another aspect of making the process better that I learned that is even more important than these scientific developments. And one is, it's not, firstly, the, the outcome of the patient is not just based on me. It is really based on a team of people that includes the nurses, the pharmacists, the people in the back room. Uh, we have uh, even the cleaners, you know, to make sure they clean the room properly. Even the caregivers, the, 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 the caregivers of the patient, uh, everyone plays a part. Of course, the most important piece in this equation it's also not me, it's the patient himself. So no matter what medicines I give, if the patient doesn't take the medicines, the medicines have no effect, right? So I often tell my patients, I have no magic, uh, but the medicine has magic. So you, if you don't take the magic, there's nothing I can do, right? So um, I guess what I want to say is that what I learned is that getting the, the team uh, trained, getting the, the protocols in place, getting everyone uh, uh, motivated, inspired, and working in a team to ensure the best care for the patient, even doing the very mundane daily tasks extremely well, that's even more important. And for that reason, I went a little bit more into the administrative leadership part of uh, healthcare, partly because I wanted to make sure that uh, I, I realized, you know, that, that what ultimately the patient receives is not necessarily just that fantastic new drug and stuff like that. Sometimes the excellence in the mundane is actually uh, what makes such a great difference. Yeah, I think you talk about something that I think it's very relevant in any sort of organization where, you know, you talk about like change making, right? I think a lot of times people look at change making and they'll start from the bottom and they just keep digging, 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 but they realize that you know, the way you make change, even though it seems a little bit more mundane, exactly like what you said, you got to start from the top and then it works its way uh, down as well. So I, th I think you touched on a very good point. Um, but I, I think more importantly, I think this is also what I wanted to talk on. Um, and, you know, you previously mentioned that you had a uh, not so good experience, you know, with your patient who unfortunately passed on. So, uh, yeah, you know, in the practice or uh, in your practice, how do you then kind of give bad news and like do you remember you know how your first kind of bad news situation was like uh, either a bad diagnosis or you tell someone that they're gonna die yeah there's always a challenge i might not be able to remember the first instance but i can uh tell you my approach uh and there is the truth about the approach is that there's no singular approach it involves listening and pacing I never go into the room with a script of what I want to say to the patient. I do know what are generally, uh, I make sure that I'm very clear what is the situation at hand. 
and what is the accurate thing that the patient needs to know eventually, right? Or the family needs to know eventually. So sometimes I pace patient and I pace the relatives. So And there's a discordance between what the patient might want to know and what the relatives might want the patient to know. Uh, so uh, sometimes relatives will say, don't tell the patient anything. You know, don't tell, don't tell, don't tell. So I do converse with the relatives sometimes, depending on appropriate levels of uh, conversation, because I must make sure that this is the designated caregiver that I'm speaking to, and not just any relative, because suddenly you can have another brother, another niece, another cousin appear. And uh, I, I make sure I'm conveying to the designated caregiver. And usually what I say is that uh, uh, ultimately, I will have to convey this to the patient uh, because it's the patient's right to know. And I also like you to consider uh, how would you see it if you were the one and other people were holding the diagnosis from you, right? Would you have preferred to know or would you have preferred not to know, right? So uh, that is that's something to consider. So when I speak to a patient, sometimes I will pace the patient in the sense that I figure out what the patient wants to know. I will say a little bit and ask the patient, what more do you want to know? What else is there? Do you have any questions here? Right. Uh, if the patient is asking about prognosis and things like that, I might go a little bit further. Right. And I also, always in prognosis, I would say that this is based on, you know, just statistics, you know, and statistics is really like many patients that are much longer than this, many patients that are shorter than this, and this is just average. It's just useful for the point of making a decision, but it doesn't necessarily apply to you. In your case, your survival could be much longer than that or shorter than that, uh, but what is you just useful for us to use it for statistically making a decision and after that, uh, how you fare is, is really up to you, right? And, and many other factors that go down the line. And we just talk about this at this point of time. And then uh, subsequently, um, let's put it aside. Having made the decision, we put it aside. Don't think about it anymore. And just focus on the best possible outcome that is possible for you. Uh, I say pace because conveying bad news does not have to be in one sitting. Right. And some people come with an agenda to say, number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, right? In 15 minutes. I mean, it, it's, it's, it can be a bit too much, mm. right? So sometimes you pace, number one, uh, you can say today, and then say, hey, let, let's talk again after this. Then number two, number three, right? Number four, number five. Okay. I mean, as, and I think progressive revelation is not uh, wrong to do. And I, I think, um, but depending on the pace of the patient, if the patient says, hey, doc, please tell me right now, uh, how long do I have to live? The truth is I will again couch in the fact that I really don't know because I'm not a deity. I cannot determine how long you live. But statistically speaking, based on patients of your type, it could be like this. But uh, on the other hand, um, you know, there are therapies available. It can be shorter. It can be longer. It's useful for us to, useful for us to make a decision 
but um, uh, let, let's focus on uh, what's best possible. Sometimes the statistics are important when we want to say prognosis is extremely poor, maybe you might want to consider palliative care, right? So usually in that regard, I will, uh, if the patient has reached that particular point in the discussion, I will say that, um, you know, at this point of time, if I was going through it like you, and I was choosing this very, very difficult and painful path with, you know, uh, less than 5% chance of uh, any good outcome. And even if it have a good outcome, that's not the end. And then the other path is uh, actually quite a peaceful transition. Uh, and I actually have used the time better during this time, more time with my family, less pain. Uh, I have a more easy transition at this point. I will choose that, you know. Plus, um, my own conviction is not the length of our day, um, but really what we make of our days. And what I mean is that a person can live 60 years, 60 months, 60 days, 60 hours or 60 minutes. But uh, it's, you can live another 60 years, but if you have wasted that 60 years and not done the things that you really wanted to do, say the things that you really wanted to say, or get right in your, with your own God or your own religion, you've wasted the 60 years, right? But even if you have 60 minutes and you make good use of that, you know, to get right with your family, get right with yourself, uh, do the, the right things that you want and be in the right frame of mind, it's not too bad too, right? So that's my own conviction. Yeah, I, I think you really hit the nail on the head in some of these areas. Uh, one of the studies that I was actually reading when I was researching for this uh, podcast and everything was really talking about the withholding of information about a terminal diagnosis. And it said that Asian countries such as Japan, China, Singapore, that these countries, that these tend to happen more often uh, in these countries. And that this could be because a caregiver telling a doctor what to say or what not to say. Um, yeah, I guess the question I was trying to get at is how does the right of knowledge work in these in, in these cases? Yeah, so uh, it's not so common as it used to be, but it's still there. Um, and I'll give my opinion in this. This part is my opinion. And that is, I feel that sometimes it's not so much that the patient cannot bear with the diagnosis. It's the fact that the relatives cannot bear with the fact that the patient knows. Right. And the fact that the patient knows means that the patient may feel a bit despondent, uh, may feel, uh, you know, various things. And the relatives can't bear the fact that now the patient knows and they have to deal with that uh, part of it. I always ask them to consider how they themselves would view in that situation. However, there are some situations in the elderly that... Uh, I find that they may not necessarily want to know. They know of their disease. And I can touch a little bit about, you know, we have gone through this treatment and this treatment, um, you know, it's not really working so well right now. And they'll say, ah, okay lah. But they wouldn't ask more than that. Mm. Mm. And as I pace, I, I push a little bit, 
if I find that they are not really pursuing it, I might hold back a little bit in selected cases. Right. Is it because right. they themselves may not be in like the right state to then there's no need to hear it because maybe they kind of know or maybe they kind of know, but it's just a what word enunciated becomes a reality. Right. Right. So they might not want to say it. They might not want to think about it that way. They still put full faith and trust in me, but uh, they just don't want to say it. So I think it's a difficult thing. And in some cases, I feel that uh, uh, there's also the fact that sometimes you don't know, right? There, there's, there's the fact that, uh, you know, uh, if a patient has a particular possible diagnosis, but not really sure about it yet, I'm not going to convey it to the patient. And sometimes I might not convey it to the relatives yet because I don't know yet, because we haven't done the biopsy, don't really know it yet at the point of time until uh, the biopsy is done. Right. Yeah. I, I think, you know, something that you also mentioned earlier about having them close whatever problems they had with their families, being able to uh, kind of finish everything that they have to finish within that limited time that they have. I think one of the things that I, I've read about are things by like Larry Samuel. I'm not sure whether you heard of him. He's like some culture uh, psychologist and he talked about like the psychology of death and he stated that you know, one of the things that a lot of people do and it's important for them to know, like your whole right of knowledge thing about saying goodbyes and getting the sort of like house in order can help bring kind of death and dying into like ordinary conversation as well. And I think that's exactly uh, your your opinion as well. And yeah, it's just quite uh, cool to, to hear about this. Yeah, so, you know, and, and I guess that kind of ties in also into maybe... So that conversation yeah. you can actually have even earlier. Mm. So even independent. So sometimes I do it early on before terminality, right? And I say, you know, I, I'm not sure how this will fare, but, um, you know, you just might want to consider, like, you know, we don't know how things will fare. This is a maybe intensive treatment you're going through. Just, you know, just during this period... Uh, you know, just consider you know making sure that there are things that you need to settle you have to settle them you know during this period of time or you might say that to the relatives as well mm. so just to make sure that there are no loose ends because the last thing you want to do is you know when we are gasping and then oh, something I wanted to say something I wanted to, to you know uh, or the relative has something that they wanted to say to the patient, and then they always reserved it. When the patient is dying, I would say that to the patient or, you know, just, and mm. then uh, sometimes the patient passes away suddenly and they feel very, ah, I wish I said this or, you know, something I, I did. So uh, in some cases, like uh, for some of my patients, their relatives are overseas, will come back, fly back, see the patient for a while and then they go back again. So that, you know, even if the patient subsequently passes away, they've had that contact, you know, uh, right. that last contact right is this is there like a hard and fast rule regarding this or is it no i really think up it's, to the it's very difficult to make it hard and fast rule about this except that we can do in terms of training i would say our oncologists here are better trained for that uh compared to some other specialties but some better specialties may not deal with death and dying as much as us um but it's an area for which we continue to try and get better because um, I would say this is not so much a, a science as an art, 
in, 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 in executing. Right. So, you know, firstly, I think, I think I wanted to like also ask, you know, partly about your, whether does this affect kind of you as, as a clinician, you know, having these cases, does it affect you when you go home? Because, you know, I, I think dealing with this kind of setbacks, you know, if a treatment doesn't work, you can get yeah. emotionally attached to the to the patient as well. I, th- I think, uh, yes, can get emotionally attached. And uh, especially in hematology, some of the patients we see over a long period of time, and uh, they, you know, we see them through very intensive treatments. We've known them for a year, two years. And then sometimes we even know them for many, many years later. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then sometimes other things happen to them later on. And we feel very emotionally um, affected by, by it. I think it's nothing wrong to have emotions, but it is draining on, draining on, on ourselves, you know, when, when, when that happens. I would say that uh, the times in which I get up in bed at night and then uh, worry, 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 is when I feel that, um, hey, maybe I could have done this thing a little bit better. Right. You know, so sometimes uh, in the past, I used to do it more, which is uh, I'll call the ward at night and then I'll come back to the hospital to see the patient, you know. So, uh, um, but uh, I would say that uh, the most enlightening aspect was when I went for a course in statistics. Uh, not too long ago. And uh, the statistician uh, said something that kind of enlightened me a little bit. It's kind of obvious, but enlightened Mm. me. And um, he said that um, decisions that you make, right, based on probabilities and statistics, if you have accounted for all the probabilities and statistics available to you at that time, and uh, make the right decisions on that, they remain the right decisions, even if the outcome is not favorable at the end of the day. Right. But collectively speaking, over a long period of time, as you continue to make the right decisions, um, overall, your decisions will uh, turn out to be positive ones overall, as opposed to negative ones. Mm. So in truth, in life, we make decisions and we kind of subconsciously or consciously weigh probabilities in making those decisions. But uh, I put it in a different way, which someone else uh, enunciated, and that was decisions are deterministic, right? Uh, While outcomes are probabilistic. Right. What this means is that there's always an element of probability when it comes to an outcome. But decisions are you determine, and as long as you made the right determination, it was the right decision after all. Mm. Yeah, I, I guess maybe like one last question before we wrap it up is also maybe one of the upsides of your job. I think you mentioned at the very start that you have had good experience. There one that like kind of uh, made it seem like oh, this is all worthwhile. You know, what I mean, like once you've gone through everything, and there are good cases that come out of it as well. So is there like one particular situation that? Stuck up. Well, I must say there are many occasions uh, in many different aspects. Um, and sometimes it's just uh, seeing the staff getting on so well together. 
uh, that's, uh, you know, so exciting. And then uh, whether in research, seeing, oh, I found this and nobody else in the world has found this before. And that's, mm. that's a Eureka moment. But I think the most encouraging thing was uh, in one of our survival events, uh, we were having, I think, the 30th anniversary of our bone marrow transplant program and seeing the, you know, hundreds of people coming back and, you know, uh, the long-term survivors, their caregivers, their their family, and you see, you feel the energy of the room. You see them greeting their nurses. Hey, hi, you know, and how are you? And you see that you've not only uh, healed a patient, you've healed a family. You've healed, mm. uh, and also, you know, the, the, there's meaning to it, you know. So I, I think that, that, that really takes the cake for me. Yeah, definitely sounds like a super rewarding uh, thing to must have experienced. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I, I mean, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for coming. I think you know it's been such a honor to have you here. I've learned so much. And I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much, uh, Xavier. I yeah. Enjoy it. And so that brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll catch you in the next one.